Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is X Job Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Bob Scott. Now, Bob and I have known each other for some considerable time and I'm really grateful for seeing me on this bank holiday Monday. But where did it all begin for Bob Scott? Where were you born and what, what was your background? Okay, um, my family were in the military. And so actually I was born in North Devon, but um, didn't spend any time there. And for the first 15 years, spent my life you know, obviously trawling around the UK and um, overseas. Oh, wow. Moving schools routinely, regularly. And I think what they did is set me up to learn good interpersonal skills, make make new friends or new acquaintances as quick as I could because invariably it was two years turnaround. Um, and so that's really where it began. Um, and, of course, uh, I had a quite a challenging relationship with my father who was a, a, a classical um ex-military guy. He's actually in the RF police. Oh, was he? He was in SIB, yeah, and he was away a lot. Um, and he was one of the old school. Was, you know, his, his motto was, you rule by fear till you can rule by consent. Yeah. He said, with you, unfortunately, I never got to the consent bit. I, and, of course, I was never frightened of him either. So it was, it was challenging. So I, when I got to about 15, I forget how many schools I'd done and how, how often we'd moved. Um, I was clearly a reasonable athlete, a reasonable footballer. And I wanted a job that was outdoors. I didn't want to join the military. Um, but I needed to do something because he was likely to be posted overseas again. Um, so it happened that Essex had um, their, their um, cadet school and it was a residential program and they'd had their first year and they were recruiting for their second year. And this was in the late 60s. Um, and I passed. I got through and um, became a cadet there, the second, the second ever um, intake of cadets, and it was manna from heaven. You know, I was, I was pretty, properly institutionalised as a child anyway. Yeah. So moving into um, into residential uh, environment was easy for me, and it got me away from, as I say, quite a challenging relationship with my father. And you already knew how to clean your shoes because your dad would have been telling you to do well, that I did his, I did his boots and his brass buttons and everything for his uniform because wow. he, was, he was a drill pig at times. You know, my father was a bit of an enforcer. They used to... Uh, a parachute, not literally, but parachute into different parts of the world to sort out other people's problems within the, the Royal Air Force Military Police. So it was a, it was a tough cookie. Um, but yeah, so all that, all that regimental um, cleaning of shoes or boots, and, and, and of course in those days they were detached to all collars, so they had separate yeah. collars. Um, it was fine. Um, and I settled in there really well and really easily. And of course what it did, it gave me an opportunity to um, play sport, go to school, um, and prepare, you know, for a future career in the police. And I was there just short of three years. I came away from there as um, top cadet. Um, and, you know, the, my career then was being mapped out for me. You know, you've done well in the cadets, you've done this, done that, you know, get into the police, study, do your exams, you know, get promoted. And I don't know what happened, but a, a switch flicked in my head at Einsham Hall, and I, I, I came almost bottom of Einsham Hall. I, I just switched off. The marching and all that was fine again. I, you know, the shout and hollering at you by the drill pig was fine. 
That was at Eintracht Hall. Again, a bit, but I just switched off. Um, and as a result, um, when I left there, I joined in January 1973, and I was posted to Basildon in March 73. And that was a punishment station. There was a few of us that ended up down there. And I remember going to the commander's office, divisional commander's office, um, who was, again, really old school, and he looked up at the, th- at the three of us who were there then and said, um, this is what I get, he says. So I don't think any of you will last three months. Good luck. And that's it. We've got marched out. Well, I never. And, um, of course, um, Basildon was an amazing place for me. Yeah. I still, it's deep in my heart still. Um, I, I set about uh, doing the job, a job that actually I loved. Um, and I started on nights and very quickly realised that policing was just where I wanted to be. Um, but I also equally quickly realised that I was quite good at falling over people, climbing out of windows, dumping cars. So I had seemingly had this knack of, of being in the right place at the right time. You make your own luck sometimes, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. But that, that's how it seemed way back then. It, was just, it all seemed pretty straightforward and easy. And uh, what happened then was that within 18 months, I'd got... Uh, Pushed upstairs, as it was called then, yeah. as an aide to CID um, because of the successes, I guess, I had uh, as a bit of a thief taker and um, found myself in a whole new world, a world that I didn't really know much about. You know, my, my thought of wearing a big hat at uh, Basel Town Centre and fighting with the yobs and, and, and um, all the stuff that went with that, wearing a uniform was fantastic. But of course, suddenly I had a window opened into the world of CID and then there were... At Basel, I think there were probably 12 detectives, all looking old and grizzled and, and well-worn. Yeah. And, and they were, um, uh, there I was at just barely 20, 21 as an aide. Oh, it's, it's, it's fascinating because you're talking about a time when, you know, look at popular television, Life on Mars, yeah. Ashes to Ashes, all those. That was the, the beginning of it, wasn't it? It was, it was. I mean, I... Now, looking back now, uh, you know, I've been out 20 years, unbelievably. I, I, I completed my 30 years on January 11th, 2003. I don't use the R word because obviously, as you know, I'm now to have a 20-year career yeah. in the commercial sector. But, but looking back now, it was really quite pioneering. I mean, the pay wasn't very good. You had Edmund Davis in the mid-70s. When I went on to the CID, I was the first aide up there for a while. I hadn't had many recruits in the 70s. I couldn't recruit people because of the pay. Um, so I was a novelty. And in those days, you were given meter brakes, stolen bicycles. And of course, also, then those days, there was a detective, detective duty allowance. And you had to qualify for it by completing so many hours a month to get it. I mean, it was a pittance, but you had to. But of course, they made the aides uh, and the young DCs um, work more hours than the old DCs to keep the, uh, the hours up. Uh, and you got treated like, um, uh, well... I don't quite know what the modern word would be for it, but certainly you were treated like a second-class citizen. You were the lackey. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I loved it. Yeah. Because it, 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 it then the, the, uh, the downside was all the guys I've been chasing and harassing in uniform looked at me as a, a, a uniform cop out of uniform for a while, weren't very communicative. Yeah. But after a while, I found that, of course, the whole, the whole ethos of where I was was quite different from where I'd come from. And I found it exciting and it was something I really wanted to do. And Basildon, as you would imagine, was full of, of opportunity. You know, it was a time where, um, you know, you still had your long-term, we had your safe blowers still. We had some of those going on still, you know, cracking safe with with, with night just before the advent of the IRA bombings when they stopped, stopped using Jelly Night yeah. because of it. 
you had your, your, your long-term burglars that were using a bit and brace that were new Bazarin and knew where they could break into houses and were doing many, many of those. And then there's the advent of the young robber. Um, armed robbers then were beginning to appear. And of course, Bazarin being the town it was then, if not now, was they much associate themselves still with the East End. They weren't, oh, yeah. they weren't Essex people or Bazarin people, they were London people. Yeah. And there was a lot of um, movement between East London and, and, and down that Thames corridor, Greys and Bazarin. So it was, a, it was a brilliant place to be as a young aspiring detective. Um, and I embraced everything. I, I was utterly um, engulfed by the whole, the whole way of life. Very selfish, I have to add. Very selfish you know, from, from my point of view. Um, but I was absolutely and utterly immersed in what I was doing. But it's brilliant, isn't it? Because what you're saying there, and if I put this in front of a, a young detective now, they wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. And I don't mean that disrespectfully for, to, to them because actually I accept that the world has moved on, it's the online culture and all that, but people still commit burglaries. People yeah. still do robberies. They don't do um, the meter breaks in it. I mean, that was that was a classic probationer job, wasn't it? You'd go to somewhere where they've broken into their own electric meter or if they had one on their television, the gas meter, whatever it may be. I mean, obviously it doesn't happen now, but... Yeah, this this is a completely different world, but it's still it's modern history. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem so long ago now. No, I'm sure. To the young officer, it does seem a long time ago. I think then what it what it did, you know, for me certainly, it was give me a grounding in meeting people as a as a plainclothes officer, because it was a different different relationship than it was when I was in uniform. Albeit I was only there eighteen months. Um, and it was routine, and there were, you know, the, the, the success rate on detection was low. But depending on how much you wanted to graft and how how you were able to identify the opportunities to to get a, a success out of it, and went for it, then you could, and we did. And um, you know, uh, a very dear friend of mine uh, um, came to Basel at that time, and we were pals and business. Um, Colleagues on the CID for many years at Basel. I say many. I was only on the CID there for four years because um, in October '79 I got headhunted onto the five RCS, the Regional Crime. Oh, Sport. did you? Yeah. So uh, and that was again because of the success, mostly then uh, towards the mid and late '70s, was uh, say the rise of the the armed robber. Um, and in those days, then suddenly you were getting gangs going around. Um, and uh, robbing uh, restaurants and uh, restaurant pubs, public houses for their tills and their cash. Yeah. Because then in those days, there was a lot more cash about in course. the 70s. And of course, um, what then it was the rise of was the cash in transit because there was a lot more cash. And people may or may not remember, there were, there were hugely successful. The armed robber became the, the celebrity of the late 70s yes. and the Banster Chainsaw robberies. And they would use extravagant ways of opening up cash in transit money boxes to steal cash, obviously armed. Um, rarely did anybody get shot, but occasionally they did. Yeah. But but it, this became big business. And I I kind of gravitated through uh, uh, from wanting to investigate crime to wanting to stop crime, to be proactive yep. before it happened. And and all this happened really quickly. And, of course, Bazarin gave me the opportunity because there were some good robbers down there with good connections into East London. And the whole thing really gathered a pace for me. And then suddenly in October... 1979, there I was, the youngest detective on 5 ICS at Brentwood. And I thought what a lot of old grizzled men they were, and they were probably only in their 30s and 40s. Um, but I suddenly then had had, I'd gone from loving being in uniform, 
all right, only 18 months, loving going on to CID and have my eyes open to investigating crime. And then as I got, you know, I was obviously in a hurry. Uh, then I got to see, well, actually, it's all very well processing crime and, and interviewing people, which I loved. Uh, and, and of course, in those days, it was, you know, relied on confession. And standard all abortion. written down, yeah. Yeah, you know, it was he said, I said. And then going to court, I remember doing my own um, remands in front of uh, Rathbone Danico, who was their then lead at JP at Biddeke Magistrates Court. You know, there was a young man doing all these things very quickly. And then, of course, at the Crown Court, the old one at Chelmsford, giving evidence because everybody fought it because it was I said, he said. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I absolutely got engulfed in all these kinds of challenges. But I knew then that I wanted to look at how could I then look at intelligence about crimes about to be committed in the future. And, of course, that then moved me on to the Regional Crime Squad. And that was right bang in the middle of when the armed robber was at their most. I mean, um, there was a, an open channel in the Met that we all used. And five RCS worked quite closely, which then was nine RCS in the Met. Um, and we routinely obviously operate in and out of, uh, of the Met, even though 5RCS was a huge area in its own. Um, and you know, there, were, there were multiple robberies every day, armed robberies, mm. and you were never very far away from an armed robbery. And um, so we, we ended up you know, involved in, in, in investigating armed robberies, but obviously in sitting on plots for future robberies and having a fair degree of success. Of course, that's just what that spawned then was. There I was, you know, my Kevin Keegan, Curly Perm, one of the youngest <laughs> people there, arrogant, you know, an arrogant young man at 20, what it was, 29, 27, 29, where would I be? Yeah, thereabouts. Um, and absolutely loving it. Yeah. Embracing everything about that. The, you know, we had surveillance. I'd never done surveillance before in the way. Um, firearms, carrying guns. Oh, you were firearms, firearms officer? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, all of that, all that entailed. But what was the technology sense. like then, Bob? Because obviously we've moved into the digital world. They've, you know, people work off of WhatsApp and their mobile phones. And what what are the comms like? There were no mobile phones. No, of course. Um, and there was no pages then. Um, it was a phone box. If you got if you got lost or stranded, you had to go, go on the call on the phone. But the um, the cars then were Hillman Avengers. Um, there was the odd Cortina. Um, we actually had fisticuffs over the. Ford Capri that was obviously <laughs> delivered there, which is a modern car. Um, and, the, and the comms was a suitcase set in the back seat and you had to run the cables through and hold it, had a, have it in your hands. The, the remote buttons and all the gadgetry didn't come along until a little bit later. I mean, obviously then the RCS was a four-year secondment and right. they, were, they were very strict about it. So 79 through to 83 was my turn. Um, um, and the cars then towards the end of that got better. But no, it was, it was um, really interesting. In those days it was three double crew cars or three single crew cars then. Um, and you learned how very quickly how to manage a car and get out on foot and get back into the team. Um, it, was, it was an amazing time. And I, again, embraced surveillance. I absolutely loved it. And watching people commit crime was the biggest buzz oh, yeah. that I ever had, um, which, of course, then led me on later on. I didn't realise it would lead me on to a, a different area of, of proactive policing. So that, that – but that, what that also um, – at that time was um, the IRA were then pretty active and they were out on the day that the bomb went off at Horse Guards Parade and they killed um, many horses and people. And um, it was a scary time at that time as well, operating in plain clothes, doing surveillance. There's an awful lot going on. The world is, a, you know, in hindsight, pretty dangerous. It didn't feel like it then. No. Um, so we did a lot of cross-border stuff with the Met um, and, of course, there was a hue and cry about the success of the armed robbers and nobody's thinking about it. And um, 
for me, it was then the first exposure to supergrasses. Um, because at, at that stage, they began then to look at how can we how can we attack, go on the attack with armed robbers, and and the information was coming in that we could cover a plot and then and get arrested, and then of course then what happened is one or two of them turned. Some very famous supergrasses in the early eighties that that, that um, undermined the the armed robbers, and of course um, things were changing because as you know everything changes. Yeah, you know, nothing ever stands still. But that was an amazing time, and. Um, uh, one of the stories that, that, that you know, stick out in my mind uh, that I'm happy to talk about was that my then DCI was a man who I absolutely adored. Um, and um, we had to go and make a payment to a source. And so we jumped in a car down to, down to Basildon to uh, pay him out. And um, on the way down, we were passing through the lane. I said, hang on, Gov. I said, I know those two in that cab. And as it turned out, they were both known criminals from that from Basel and so not not Langdon. I said they're up to no good. You know, there's, there's something wrong here. Anyway, cut what was probably about a two hour story short. They eventually turned up at a um, at a small shopping precinct uh, down at uh, Basildon. And the passenger got out, it was a man of severe violence. And the cab then pulled around the corner and parked up. And I said to my boss, look boss, you look after the cab because this fellow's a handful. He'd actually badly assaulted a police officer right. some time before, um, uh, and um, I said, "Let me let me take care of him." And I jumped out and uh, jumped into, into the telephone box and watched him walk up and down. You can tell when somebody starts anxious before they commit crime. Yeah. You now the whole body language changes and up and down. So he's definitely at it. So I picked up the phone and rang Basil and Nick, and uh, luckily one of the DCs was there and I knew him. Uh, obviously, I'd been away for a while. I said, "Look, it's it's Bob Scott." And I said, "I ain't got time for that." I said, "Look." I said, I've got a fellow here, and I obviously named him. And so he's about to do something. And as I said, he's about to do something. He went into the post office, come shop, bashed the uh, bloke at the till, and ran out with a big handful of cash. I said, he's just done a, he's just done a till snatch at uh, such and such. Put the phone down. I chase across the car park behind him. He hears me. He turns around and says, you know, in, 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 in uh, industrial language, go away and stop bothering me. And then realizes me, he said, oh, fuck, he said, it's you, Mr. Scott. <laughs> so so uh, he started running and I then grabbed him and uh, uh, got hold of him. And he never let go of the money, never let go of the money. And I, I, I held him down in the middle of the road. And uh, he said, look, who's grasped on me? And I said, nobody's grasped on you, you've just been unlucky. He said, I'll give you half the money if you let me go. So I said, no, I'm not. He said, I'll give you all the money if you let me go. And with that, of course, the cab turns up. And he says to the cab driver, get him off me. Well, of course, what he didn't know was that cab driver many years before had been an informant. Oh, so, wow. I, so I said to him, if, you get out, if I get out, if you get out of that car, you know what's going to happen, don't you? And of course, so he was then one leg in, one leg out doing the okie-cokie. The next thing is, my boss, my DCI, drives across the, the grass verge, across straight in between me and the, um, and the car, jumps out, and then suddenly the blue lights and two tones and they all turn up and he's nicked. And, um, you know, those, those are the sort of things that happened to me throughout my career. I was always in the sort of seemingly the right place at the right time. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a, a good day. But, um, you know, the, the Rigi was something that set me up, you know, for my love of, of proactive policing and also gave me my first opportunity to experience uh, the undercover role. Yeah. 
And that was only because I was the youngest. I had this full Kevin Keegan curly pair. Good looking bloke. What about that? But certainly. <laughs> no, I still, you know, in those days, you put baby oil in your hair. So you, your leather coats used to have that dripping, that stain of baby oil. But I mean, it was nuts. And uh, I came in one day and said, oh, we've got, we've got a, a source that's well into a team of antique uh, robbers. They've got, a, they've got a warehouse full of, of stolen antiques. And the source is prepared to take something in, in there. And, and we need somebody to go there and pretend, pretend to be the buyer. So, of course, I, looked, I said, well, I'll have a go. You know, there, was, there was no rules. There was, there was no. No, no training. There was no support. There was no nothing. And they said, oh, all right. So, so I said, well, what do you want? I said, well, I don't really know what I want. So, um, so we'll have to meet the source. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I said, but I need a car. Well, the DCI in those days, you only want a half decent car. So we, we then did a quick PNC check and found a number that didn't exist and got a set of plates made up, took the rent out the window, put the plates on until oh, the really? car was done. Then we got, um, I think it tells you how old it was, got five pound notes and we then made, cut some paper up because they wouldn't let me have much money and put the odd five pound note top and bottom of a wedge of, of oh, cut money and put it in the bag. And uh, that was it. I was ready to go. So I then drove and met the source and uh, he said, look, just do as I tell you, boy, and you'll be all right. Okay, fine. Um, off we went and met them, and um, they then said, you know, obviously got spoken to, just to make sure I was uh, proper. Right? And then um, I got taken to this place right in the middle of nowhere, up in Suffolk, and um, it was absolutely stacked full of antiques, stolen antiques. And of course, then the job was then to to um, get them to bring the goods out in the open. Because all I'd done, I'd been taken. I, I couldn't tell you where I'd been taken. The days of tracking devices yeah. and the rest of it, no mobile phones. I mean, you know, you were on your own. Um, anyway, cut a long story short, we um, we did a deal. We agreed to meet at a, at a very well-known junction. They'd bring all the gear that I'd selected that I wanted. And um, we have a meeting. Of course, unfortunately, they got nicked as they, as they turned up at the meeting and they were all, all nicked and the warehouse was searched and... I recovered all the goods. That was my first taste. And of course, then I've gone from being a uniform PC and loving it to wanting to be a detective and loving it to be a detective who deals with crime to saying, actually, I like the idea of looking at future crimes to then to a regional crime school officer dealing with, you know, in, in international gangsters. Of all, and they weren't necessarily a lie. National gangsters who are committing robberies and the like. Um, to then participating in crime, which then I thought, well, this, is, this is where I want to be. Of course, uh, lo and behold, my time was virtually up then. So I then um, finished there and went to Chelmsford Town. Oh, did you? For two years. Yeah, Chelmsford Town probably hated me more than I hated Chelmsford oh, really? Town. Oh, yeah. But it had nothing to do with Chelmsford or the people or the police because it was – I had some great, great fun there. Yeah. It was just – it felt like my legs had been cut off and I was, I was um, pretty unhappy. I was a big drinker in those days as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was part of the culture, though, wasn't it? It was. It was, yeah. But, um, but I was, and I was very unhappy at Chelmsford. Um, uh, and say so it had nothing to do with the, the, the station, the town, the people, because, it, you know, I got stuck in and we had some, some great results. It was just a different pace. Yeah. And, of course, having come from being involved in, you know, carrying guns covertly, following robbers, supergrasses, you know, uh, top end criminals to, to dealing with local criminals was was tough. Yeah, uh, tough. Say tough. For everybody that was involved. So that lasted two years, and I then got a call to say, "Would I want to be part of the new CDU at headquarters?" So, what year yeah. was this? This would have been about eighty four. 
So just about the time of the Jeremy Bambam? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Just after then, yeah. Um, and and uh, I think it was Maggie was then uh, under pressure because, of course, in the early 80s, what happened is those people who had committed robberies in the 70s had loads of money yeah. at their places in Spain and elsewhere. And then they realised they could convert all that ill-gotten gains because they, they were swimming with money into drugs. And then it was puff mostly. Yeah. Um, the heroin population then, although you know, I didn't know much about drugs then, was pretty stable. The cocaine was was for the rich and famous. You know, people did speed who wanted an upper, um, but everybody wanted a bit of puff. Um, and um, unbeknownst to me, because I'd been off it for a while, you know, drugs were emerging in quite a big way. And um, I got accepted for the new CDU, went up there, and uh, you go for this old stable block, went for the door of the old stable block headquarters. And it, the door in front of me was the door to the DI's office. He said, come in here. So I went in there. He said, welcome uh, to the new CDU. So I said, great, I'm looking forward. And I thought it'd be back like the old days, from the RCS days, chasing robbers and having great fun and all that sort of thing. He says, you're with me. So who are you with me? So I'm the DI on the drug squad. You're going on the drug squad. I said, no, I don't, I don't want to go on the drug squad. I don't, I don't know nothing about drugs. I don't want to know nothing about drugs. It's not me. So we haven't got a choice. You're right. Um, and that's where that started. And um, it's a brand new team. Um, there's some really good guys. And I think, you know, um, I said to you before we started, the most important thing about all of what I'm saying here was that I was part of a team. Yeah. It is always about a team. I've been in some good teams and some very good teams. But it, you know, nothing I've done or achieved has been on my own. It's always been with good teams. And I love working with good teams. Although some people see me sit outside that a little bit at times, I still see it as being part of the team. But you're part of that jigsaw. And I, I make you absolutely right because I get sick to death of watching people on the television who regale the great job that they did as the SIO or this, that and the other. They never start with the caveat, I was part of that team. Yeah. I understand why, because in the end, it's their role in it that, that people want to hear about. But, but say so that that was that. So I took all those skills and experiences I'd had in the first ten years, seventy-three to eighty-three, which was a lot. Mm. And Basildon, and as I say, was an amazing learning curve. Um, the RCS was an unbelievable um, opportunity to learn even more. Um, Chumps of town, I stood still, and then here I was now at the, at the birth of a new a new squad because um, drugs I'm sure were investigated before then but they hadn't done it in that way so there was a few guys there that I knew but there was some I didn't um, and um, we looked at what we could and couldn't achieve with a small team I think there was 10 of us um, <coughs> and um, from 85 onwards because we had to get it kitted up um, the only the only thing that became a contentious point, and I'm not sure when this was, was when the first mobile phone turned up. It was a big brick. And yeah, again, there was fist there was fist fights over who should have it out in the car. Who could ever believe it? You have a phone out in the car. Pages were you know, commonplace, loads of pages, but a mobile phone. Well, it was hardly mobile because you could hardly pick it up. The battery okay. was so big. So that was that. But um, but what we decided was we'd look at Essex then, um, in the same way as it probably still is now was that the flow of criminality and drugs particularly um, came out of the East End, um, if not in from the coast on the importation, yeah. and up through the rest of East Anglia. But, but, but the, the relationships were built for Essex. Um, and um, it was clear that, um, that uh, amphetamine sulfate, speed was a, a big deal, puff, uh, cannabis was a big deal. Um, the heroin was a pretty stable thing, and we didn't know much about it. 
So as old regards a dirty drug that I knew much about, which it isn't. But uh, but um, we didn't learn a bit more about that till later. And we learned on our feet about how to investigate drugs in a team. Surveillance was great, but of course costly. And surveillance needed good information. Otherwise, you'd sit for ages. And the days of sitting around on plots then was beginning to go because money uh, paid over time was in, yeah. which it wasn't such a big deal in the early days of my career. And, and budgets were, were much more um, restrict, restricted. Yeah. So we looked at how could we be proactive in the course of my UC skills. I said to, the, to then DI, and the, well, let's look and see if we can buy it. Let's draw on a plot and see if we can nick them in the act of selling the drugs. And that's when, when my career, UC career, started again. And I was with some like-minded people um, who bought into that. And we then honed our skills on the drug dealers that were in the East End that were dealing into Essex, bringing them into Essex so that, you know... It's in our pla- yeah, on our plates, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they, they, I'd wonder why we wanted them just to go across the... Uh, but it wasn't M25 then. I think it, Perhaps it was then, but um, I don't think they've been long. And um, have a deal and have them off. Brook and Street yeah, Roundabout. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there or thereabouts, or you all see cock, or yeah. all along, all along there. And we had some great success and some failures. We made some mistakes, and we learned a lot. You know, um, it, it was a, it was a, a lot of both. But it was a really exciting time again. Um, lots of things going on, lots of things changing. You know, as you'll know from you know, from the history of Essex. You know, um, as we moved through the eighties into the nineties, then there was the party pills and pay parties, yeah. and all those sorts of things, and. Um, cocaine became, you know, um, much more of a, an affordable thing. Um, speed was still massively in the middle of all that, and we had loads of Amphet factories in Essex, yeah. particularly in the Harlow area, yeah. the Italian Quarter, and out there. And um, there was a real hardcore of people who were manufacturing, both from the Met into Essex, but also Essex criminals that were then got involved in manufacturing speed. And we knocked over quite a few factories, yeah. drug factories. Um, illicit labs and they were great fun great fun but the policing and I, I'm, I'm sure they probably do it but we had a precursor officer didn't we somebody who would actually go and see what chemicals were being sold by who where they were going and all of a sudden you've started to build the clues up and I, I, I don't know I hope that it still goes on to a certain degree but I, I remember the times and it was absolutely it was brilliant I mean I, I had so much fun but when you were Doing your undercover stuff, there was no terms of engagement. There was no ripper or anything like that. No, I mean, well, of course, um, Pace came in in '84, which, yeah. which of course, bypassed me because I, I, I really didn't get too involved in in interviewing people anymore from from about '84 onwards. Um, and no, the, the the undercover side of it, the rules of engagement and the management of it, and um, the evidential value and the and the and the the risks and pitfalls of participating in crime. Uh, there was nothing then written down. But but um, in hindsight, what we did, we created our own rules, our own pocketbooks, our own guidelines. And as it turned out, they weren't a million miles away no. from where they ended up. Now, that was, that was I think, much good fortune because what, going on to what I said earlier, we then operate with two area drug squads in the Met, Essex Drug Squad. We had a very strong working relationship with them because, again, there was a lot of flow. And so um, we then met some of the undercover guys from the Met. Um, and unbeknownst to us at the time, the Met were then beginning to look at formalising national guidance and plans for, right. for the use and deployment of undercover officers. Um, 
Uh, and that wasn't until the end of the 80s that that became um, agreed and accepted. Uh, but, but we'd obviously met a lot of the guys then that became the pioneers of the new system. Unbeknownst to us, we'd met them. Um, um, because then, obviously, what happened was um, in the late 80s, um, we were invited to, to go on the, on, on the National Undercover course. Myself and my pal went on it. Um, the first two six officers were on it in 1999. And how long had that course been in, in place? Is uh, a couple of years. Right. A couple of years by then. I think, yeah. Um, and, of course, again, another epiphany, another eye-opening opportunity to see things done that we've been doing, which we weren't doing too badly at, mm. in fairness. We weren't miles away. Um, and uh, clearly we passed a course, and it was a tough two-week course. Not everybody did, quite a high um, failure rate. Um, and some tough, tough days involved there, which set us up. Um, but it also opened their eyes to them was that they were they'd written the um, manual and guidance for undercover officers, but they were then beginning to look at writing it for test purchases. Now I know that it's different again now. I mean, I'm 20 years gone, yeah, yeah. and I know that things moved on, and of course, you know, so they should. But then they were making very clear distinctions between the two, between who was undercover, who was a test purchaser, which we never agreed with uh, at that stage. But that's where the rules were going. And we were then asked to stooge on the, um, the um, test purchase course in the Met. Yes. So we then saw at first hand what this was all about. And we thought, this is great. We can take this back with us into Essex and um, get, get the organisation to, to look at it and adopt it. Um, and of course, through the late 80s and early 90s, you know, uh, gang violence and um, pills and associated uh, crime around drugs had begun to you know, dominate the scene and dominate um, uh, the press as well. Um, and uh, we began to look at how we could use the skills of the undercover course back into Essex and then how we could then use what we learned about the test purchasing, the benefit of Essex. And it took a few years. It took to the mid-90s. Why? I think that we were, it was being driven from the bottom up to start with. There wasn't really the experience in the in the command right. structure. We'd seen it, and of course, you know, there are many competing interests about uh, about you know dealing with com crime, public disorder, and all those sorts of things. Let alone look at getting involved in crime that's participating in crime. And and there was, uh, there was then, and probably still is now, a lot of misgivings about participating in crime. And yet, there's very clear guidance and has yeah, been for years about how you participate the issue has always been about how, how you manage the participation and things that go with it um, and of course there we were on the drug squad and there we were now been adopted by and on the register front national undercover officers and we wanted to go out and use those skills and i have to say that you know, I, i've loved essex police all my life i've been in and around it or was in and around it from the age of 16 yeah to the age of 49 and it, it gave me the greatest opportunities for everything that I ever did. Um, it's none required to love, I know, but nonetheless, I love policing and I love Essex Police for the while. Um, and in fairness to them, they, they embraced the position wholeheartedly because they allowed us to go away and operate. And then from the early 90s through to 2002, I was routinely deployed as a level one undercover officer nationally and internationally. Right. And... and, and Throughout that time, 
got involved in some amazing investigations as part of a team again, uh, with a role to play in that team, where we had huge success, uh, drugs, guns, uh, funny money, you know, counterfeit yeah, money, yeah, yeah. money um, all manner of different things at a very high level. And that, that really was quite a unique opportunity. And, and how had it, I mean, it had obviously evolved from that first deployment that you said, yeah, I can do that, to the last deployment. I mean, how did you feel when you walked out that door and said, that's it, I'm not doing I was, it? I was happy. I'd, 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 I'd fulfilled my contract. I'd done everything I could do. It was very demanding because obviously, you know, through the 90s, we as a, as a team, and that was you know, the other guys that were involved with me in the, in the undercover and test purchase arena, we wore three and four hats at some times yeah. for numbers of years. A lot of pressure. We felt a lot of pressure on driving the program, convincing the organisation it was safe to do so, having some setbacks, also managing the the, the, the officers, male and female officers, who then volunteered to become test purchasers, which I'll come on to. We did an utterly amazing job as volunteers, um, doing our undercover stuff. Yeah. Um, growing and, man- and, and and creating the undercover unit within Essex, which became the first um, provincial undercover unit, and all the the uh, elements that went with driving it bottom up. I mean, they're not they're not to say there weren't people in senior ranks who bought into it, because otherwise, without them, we, we would never have got where we were. But it was it was demanding. So by the time I got to two thousand January the eleventh two thousand three, I'd fulfilled my obligation. Yeah. A lot of people thought I'd never leave because I was, you know, um, ingrained. Absolutely, yeah. but I knew that I'd done it, and I was I was emotionally worn out from the professional point of view. Yeah. And I, I was looking forward naively to a long, happy retirement. <laughs> um, Who knew? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, those those nineties were unbelievably exciting, and I've said that, I know, all the way through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was because it, we were pushing the boundaries at every opportunity, and I think when I look back. I pushed the boundaries at every opportunity to operate lawfully, but not be satisfied with where the bar is. Look, if we can set the bar higher and higher. Yeah. And and going back to what I said, luckily I worked with, and I was part of a team uh, that, that that were happy to go on the journey. We had a management structure that, that were, when they were happy, they were happy to support us, and they did. So yeah. I can't criticise Essex Police because they were massively supportive. Just just as you would expect, massively cautious. And of course, being an innovator and, a, and, a, yeah. uh, and pushing the boundaries, you don't want anybody getting in your way. No. So of course, you know, at times there were, there were, there were fractious moments, but they were grown up fractious moments. And you know, looking back now, you know, they, they were, again, there were amazing, exciting times. And that doesn't withstand all that was going on in Essex and, and nearby at the time. There was lots of things going on. Um, uh, lots of serious crime being committed, Lots of challenges, um, which which we were pretty much in the middle of, and of course um, it took us from 1991-92 to 96 to get the test purchase program underway. We had to write the program, had to get all our speakers, had to get, get everything organised, yep. as well as do our day job, um, which was on the drug squad, which we did less and less of, and go out and do our undercover stuff nationally and internationally. I travelled a lot. You know, um, on some very, very um, uh, interesting and complicated and high-value investigations. Now, there was a time when, you know, you shouldn't do, but you know, the little team I worked with, and again, we had our own gang. Now, I'm a much believer in, you know, uh, on the undercover side, it wasn't about an individual. It was just, it was our own gang. 
um, and we had all roles, had a role to play in it. You know, we had we had we were we were part of the team that had the biggest number of counterfeit passports seized ever. Um, we had the largest seizure of, of cannabis then, six point four tons uh, at Felixstowe. Wow. Uh, we had one of the largest seizures of of um, Amphet through a factory which we'd got involved with. You know, we were knocking over a little. You know, these were these were all personal, private. Successes. Yeah, yeah, of course. They never hit the, the headlines, and nor did we ever want them to. They were just great, exciting, fulfilling, professionally fulfilling moments. The downside there is, of course, that, that your, your personal and private life. Yeah, of course, you know, suffers. Absolutely, and, and and that for that, you know, I'm guilty as charged, and I was completely, utterly focused on working. So in '96, we were ready to go, and we did our first two test purchase courses in '96. And we didn't know what we wanted to do, but we knew then that the, that the organisation was open to looking at um, pills in, in clubs because there had been a number of things yeah. that happened that, that, that were high profile. Um, and so we recruited um, officers outside their probation uh, who had the profile that we could put them into pubs and clubs. Um, and we, we, I think we ended up, ended up with a dozen guys and girls who were brilliant, you know. To this day, I have nothing but admiration um, and pride in what those guys achieved. Mm. And we all we all learned together. I mean, obviously, they thought we knew what we knew, and you know, we were the vulnerable knowledge. But of course, we weren't. We were we had lots of knowledge, lots of lots of courage, and lots of belief. But we were all feeling our way. And of course, the other thing that happened at those days was the V concert started. Yeah. And there were problems with the V's, so we then had to build a program of using test purchases, using arrest teams, the whole workings of how you'd find it, buy it, arrest and detain out of a major venue like the V concert. That was, that was um, I really, really enjoyed the planning stages yeah. of the FSU and all the guys that were there. Now, again, all the teams that were involved and all of them to a person embraced the challenge to succeed at doing what we did. Um, the, the downside was that actually in the end, because there were so many moving parts from A to B, that the division that it, that, it, that it was on, which was Chelmsford, picked up the pieces. And they weren't overly happy because the, some of that planning and preparation hadn't been done. The political side had been done as well as it could be. And they ended up coming in on a Sunday morning, detectives with dozens and dozens in the yeah. cells. Uh, and it wasn't great. And it wasn't great for them. And, and you know, there were a few things. We made mistakes there. And all the way through, you will have, you'll always make mistakes. But all that was going on. Um, and uh, the officers did an unbelievable job in the, I think in the in the uh, in the in the nightclubs that we 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 did the jobs in. And of course, what then happened was we then were asked to look at helping neighbouring forces. Yeah. So we started rolling out courses for them, started helping them manage their their cases, and all the time still having our day jobs and our use. So it was it was full on. Yeah. I don't know how many hours a day every day. Um, either in force or out of force, but of course that was the that was the deal. You know, they let me go and do what I wanted to do, but they expected me to come back and use all those skills for the benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Athletics, which I was very happy to do, as were the other other guys, and we did. But but it was a full on a full on commitment. Um, you know, and through the nineties we had massive success. I mean, I've got my commendation board down there. You know, um, over the thirty years I was commended twenty two times. Wow. Um, and there were many more cases I thought were more worthy, but most of those, a lot of those, were around the TP we did, um, because having 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 proved we could buy 
and, pro and provide evidence and get conviction on test purchasing. They then wanted to open up a bit into then heroin was becoming a problem. Could we look at heroin? Well, of course, that's a different profile buyer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but a lot of those guys in the early days said, no, we can, we can transform into heroin buyers. And again, buying heroin on the street uh, and crack cocaine, obviously crack came yeah. at the same time, was a different thing altogether. Much more dangerous, more volatile, more challenging. And of course, although they call it now county lines, back in the mid to late 90s, uh, the dealers from London were always already um, yeah, they were. taking hostages in flats, old people, disabled people, vulnerable people, and setting up their crack dens and their, their supply chains from there. And um, you know, particularly at Basildon and at Grays, we had several jobs, which were amazing. You know, we operated out of disused factories to maintain the integrity of the, the operation. We, we bought um, and in, integrated our teepees into some really, really difficult, volatile uh, heroin supply chains. They did an unbelievable job, unbelievable jobs for a long time. Volunteering. Yeah. Go back to uniform or go back to their jobs and, uh, and do that. And now, uh, absolutely amazing. Um, and we had huge successes. Of course, again, what the problem with that is, is that the division then picked up the paperwork. And what then happened, and what we then started to do as we moved in through the late 90s was, well, let's not just um, draw in the, the local suppliers. Yeah. Let's bring in the London boys. We did it in the 80s on drugs club. Yeah. We, we encouraged them to come in and, and party with us in Essex. So these guys were already, already supplying. So what we then did was we upped our game a bit and we then you know, got strategies that, that brought them down to their dealers. When they did, um, that was, we brought them down the day of the races, um, on the day of the, of, of the, uh, of the arrests. That came from my early buying days where I used to go and buy in the Met and I'd meet a DCI once. And he'd say to me, oh, you're the buyer, are you? So I'd say, yeah. He said, right, well, I've, I've got a surveillance team and a firearms team for next Thursday afternoon on the high street under lamppost number four. So I want you to make sure the deal you have on the rest day is under lamppost <laughs> number four on next Thursday. There's no can you, will you? No. That's what you're going to do. And off he'd walk, you'd never see him again. Yeah, so you learn very quickly, certainly in the Met, that it was, it was by bust, it was... It was immediate yeah. gratification. They'd have the time and resources. And so you learn how to how to social engineer these 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 people into the right place. Uh, and so of course we took those skills into how we could engineer the, the the more empowered dealers into Essex. We did. But of course what that meant was arrests and, and searches in the Met, along with all this. Yeah. And the the cases became costly and complex to manage and deal, which obviously wasn't a problem for us, but it was a real problem for the divisions. So what happened before I started to, you know, my, my 30 years was up, was that they then said, well, that's just, that's just our jobs where we deal with the locals. Don't worry about those who are coming in from the outside. Now, I'm not criticising the organisation, but I think that, 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 that the unforeseen consequence of that for me was, of course, um, where I think we, we began to end up, and that was that knocking over your local dealers is all right, all it did was allow the... the, the, uh, the Very naive. Yeah, I, I get it, Paul. I, get, I understand yeah. why, but I think that you know, some, all things have unintended consequences. And um, you know, we were knocking over some really interesting people out of the Met, always the Met, sometimes yeah. in the Midlands, but mostly the Met. But it, was a labor, it became very labour-intensive for the investigation team. And, of course, it took out detectives from their day job. Yep. For a long period. I mean, I had to. I used to have to 
fight. If I was running a job, I'd have to fight for the budget to actually do it. Nobody would think, you know, we potentially would have 90 arrests on this and we get this. And you don't have a drugs problem unless you arrest somebody with drugs in their pro- pocket. That's how that's how district divisional commanders see it because they, if they don't deal with it, they haven't got a problem. And yeah. it's, it's frustrating. It is. And I, I'm sure the same, exactly the same now. I mean, no, when I, when I walked down the stairs at Basildon half an hour before duty, which I had to do in my own time, get ready to parade, yeah. and the parade was in my own time, so I'd be ready to go out at 10. Yeah. I went down the stairs at Basildon where the lockers were. The other end of that corridor was the policewomen's department, which we never went near or by. Um, uh, the police and, women's department. Yeah, it was down the bottom of the corridor at Basildon Police Station, which, which I had no dealings with until I um, actually married a policeman. But um, <laughs> uh, I went down the stairs and this really old looking fella came up the stairs with a buzz cut. He looked at me, said, your first day, boy. I said, it is. He said, well, I'm finished, mate. He said, the job's yeah, done. done. He said, so good luck to you. And that was in, that was in March 73. And we all said the same thing, and it all becomes very much cyclical. So I'm quite sure now that it's a much more complex job, communications, internet, the movement of people, the challenges are greater. But actually, in the end, for me, it's about people. People commit crime, and that's where we succeeded in that period, was that we targeted the people and their crimes that they were about to commit or had committed. But they all, every crime commences in community. And... Unless we have that community engagement, then they're never, you know, you're right, prevention comes before detection. Yeah. But unless you've got that community engagement, you're never ever going to get that full on. Yeah. I, like, I, you know, I, I couldn't be any, I couldn't have been any further removed from community engagement. And I, I loved Bazin and the people of Bazin. And lots of cops down there then were, were very disparaging. But they, those people provide OPs and support, generally the older people. Yeah. Down there, I, I mean, um, Langdon and uh, Alcatraz it was in there was yeah. was, was, a, was a was a tough place. Um, Basin was a tough place, but there were some beautiful, lovely people there. Which, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, I was in lodgings down there with uh, with some wonderful people in my early career. So I think that yeah, co- the community do need the engagement bit. But I, I got very far removed from that because I got further and further towards participating in crime. Yeah. And further and further away. But you're still working in the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, we know. We, 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 we police in this country by consent, hopefully. Yeah. Not, it's a more challenging environment now, for sure, just by what I see. And when I walked out the door in 2003, I thought, that's me done. Now, I did go back for a while. Uh, it, wasn't very, it wasn't a very happy time for me or, or them, I don't think, back into NTSOU. And I understand now more why than I did then. Um, but but um, uh it then, you know, spurred me on to go in a different direction. But come 2003 and answer your question, I'd done my bit. I was, I was happy and proud of what I'd achieved and it was for other people to pick up the baton and run with it. Oh, absolutely. How do you feel about those people that have let the undercover world down, you know, with their, <clears throat> with their revelations? I mean, we, we haven't touched on the jobs that you've dealt with. We've, we've touched on what you you know, what you've done progressing through your career. But we've got people that have made their revelations. They've, I think they've let the side down, you know, not only in what they've, the kiss and tell stuff, but the way that they've ingratiated themselves within the criminal world, you know, your animal rights activists and all those sorts of things. How do you feel about those? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complex matter. Um, I was fortunate enough to be involved in the early stages of, 
the, the animal rights issue from a policing point of view, from an undercover point of view. Um, I forget, I forget what it was called now, but it doesn't really matter. The name of the unit, not not the the Met one. This was this was a national unit. Yeah. I, I actually didn't even know about the Met Squad. Um, I've never heard of them. They were part of the SB, SB were always aligned themselves. Um, but my, my issue is this: is that the one thing that's always lagged behind is the management and control, the expertise and the management of undercover policing. And I mean, I mean the investigations rather than the national program. Yeah. Is at a local level, because it it was then and probably still is now something that you as a as an investigations manager came across rarely. Um, then the, the demand on you and the people you trusted to manage the UCs was great at a time when they were participating. In my day, I was participating in very clear, obvious crime. When you come to the animal rights thing, it's, for me, you know, um, I always saw, and it sounds like I've been clever at hindsight, there's a massive risk because these were people who had the perfect right to, to protest about what they believed in. And these weren't criminals committing acts of crime, although some of them were, a small minority were yeah, yeah. clearly criminally minded and were prepared to commit crime to their cause. But um, you've only got to look back in the 1960s in the 1960s, the, the, the US police law enforcement agencies had a big problem with bikers and with cannabis. So they yeah. then made a decision that they would allow a number of undercovers to, to, to live in amongst the bikers to get evidence. They got permission for them to smoke pot. They got permission to, to live in there. And what happened was, after that LL finishes, out of the how many they had, over half of them uh, had, had gone rogue, had, had been Stockholmed, uh, and lost their way. Uh, the others had, had got, had got puff addictions, and and and, it, uh, and you sit back and say, "Well, it's quite clear that you see that if you allow people to live in a, in a community where that's the norm, then it's very, and you're going to let them live there uh, over a long period of time, then you're going to have problems." Yeah. So I, when I saw what they were looking to do with the animal rights, one, I was very uneasy about the the ethical side of it, but more of a problem was how they were going to be able to live there in that environment without participating in something yeah. and being Stockholmed by the, by the whole, whole thing. And finally was the quality of managers looking after them. And the lad that I saw who'd, who'd, who'd made the first exposure, I felt deeply sad for him because I think he'd been let down by the organisation yeah. and those who managed him because it, it must have been clear what was happening? That, that something wasn't yeah. right. Um, whether they didn't recognise it, weren't trained enough to recognise it, or were complacent because they saw the greater good. Now, that, that level of oversight and challenge to, to what was going on, you know, from the outside of things, I didn't, I had no no value, no um, participation in that. Whereas I think the system let them down, um, not necessarily knowingly, but, but through a whole heap of those things I've just discussed. So, yeah, I think that it was going to happen. It happened in the 60s. It's happened now. Hopefully it will never happen again in the future and that the system understands the history of it and the challenges with it uh, and, and mitigate as best they can. Where the mitigation was for me and my undercover career was I was invariably taken in by a well-resourced source and my exposure to the bad guys was managed over a number of days yeah. or weeks, not months. 
and I was always in and out. And that became troublesome because you saw, and I gave evidence on a number of occasions, and standing in, in the witness box looking straight in the eye of the individuals that you've betrayed, no matter how much you know you're doing the right thing, is hard, emotionally hard. Yeah. And, um, you know, I did, I did it a few times and it never sat easy. You almost feel like saying, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but I did feel that, 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 that kind of um, uh, dilemma. No, I think, you know, I've always said my mantra has been love, hug and betray. I've spent my whole life love, hug, love hugging and betraying. Yeah. And of course, everyone looks better old-fashioned. And I'm going to have to qualify that by saying that will let I mean in my professional life. Um, because understanding the boundaries are quite interesting. You know, um, for many years, I had to go to, as the, as the door in the covers, to have um, a visit with a, I can't remember if it was a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but either way, it was, it was professional. And I had to travel quite a long way to see them. I, won- I used to be once every quarter, and then I went to twice a year. And um, they were really, really interesting sessions. But of course, they depend on the individual for being prepared to disclose, which I was, you know. I-, I went for about 12 years, never got past the age of 11. So I was very <laughs> happy to, to chat. But uh, they were great. But um, now all that side of it, it came in and uh, was supported. But I then... And I'm, you know, a long time away from that. The 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 focus on getting the right managers in place and the cover officers in place never quite caught up in my time. And I think that was one of the things that I think let down those guys there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in hindsight, you can judge judge it. I, I I don't I don't see in hindsight. Clearly, it's going to be it's going to be judged because it's going to be part of the public inquiry yeah. and, and, you know, that'll all come out in the watch. Which is still ongoing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. they're still doing the, the, the review into undercover yeah. deployments. And yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I, I'm a great believer in, you know, the transparency. So I've said, you know, I, until 1999, I never heard of um, proportionality, factual intrusion yeah. uh, and, and transparency. They were words that I'd never really used because I mean, they were too long really to start with. But actually, when, when they came along, it made perfect sense to me. Yeah. Absolutely. And those around us, it made perfect sense. Now, we, in 1999, we had a crisis in Essex because um, uh, one of our uh, investigations into a heroin um, supply uh, fell over in court. And it fell over in court um, because of um, it was on the cusp of the human rights legislation. Yeah. And the defence said, well, where's all your um, management logs? Where's, where's the necessity and justification and transparency on, on your decision-making? And it wasn't there because actually it was all about the evidence. We'd focused on the quality of evidence. Yeah. But, of course, they didn't want to focus on that because in the end it was – they couldn't. It was, it was overwhelming. So then they focused on, on well, where, where, how did you come to those decisions? And it wasn't there. And I know that, uh, that um, we had six or seven of these big cases in the pipeline. And um, – what we did was uh, myself and obviously the other lad that was equally as experienced as I there then had to go and give evidence. Um, and what we did was rather than let the operational head go in there and take the flak, we'd go in as the experts and say, right, these, these are the decisions. This is the decision log. This is how the thing runs. This is what our role is in it is. And we advise the operational head. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and then we lost that one badly and the, the test purchases suffered greatly. Out of that, which was, which, and I mean, emo, you know, emotionally suffered uh, losing that case, and we moved on and learned uh, going forward. So, 
Now, there's, there was, uh, and I could go on forever, Paul. I mean, uh, you know, you're right. I haven't spoken about a specific case. I don't, I don't really no. think it's appropriate. No, I agree. Um, uh, maybe in a different environment because there's some great stories. I work with some great people, you know, amazing under the covers, some really, really open-minded and um, forward-thinking managers, you know, DIs, DCIs and superintendents, some of them who I still keep in touch with now, who bought into all that, who loved that area of policing. And I assume, 20-odd years on, that, you know, Essex Police are still at the forefront. I hope so. Because they had a great, you know, they had a great start, yeah. you know, and and um, you know, I'm sure that they're they're still hopefully um, building on the legacy that that a few of us built back in the 80s and 90s. Well, they certainly were when I left in '16. I mean, I, and as luck would have it, I would be deployed on a regular basis as um, the uh, manager, and which was to the detriment of other people because they weren't being able to build their skills in, in that field. Yeah. But it was, it's a great tactic and long may it continue. Yeah, absolutely. But, of course, you've now moved out of the police service and yep. you've, you're have you into the commercial world. Yeah. I mean, 20 years. Yep. Intraorbis. Um, Intraorbis is 19 years old. It was incorporated on the 14th of June 2004. And I came out January 2003, did a little bit of consultancy back into Essex, which... In hindsight, it was a mistake. Didn't really work. Came away from there. Um, I think I guess late two thousand three, early two thousand four. And a pal of mine said to me, "Look, you know, I'm working for a pharmaceutical company. Um, we we're great online. We're taking out counterfeit pharmaceuticals, but we really want to look back up the supply chain. And I know you've got the skill sets to deploy in an undercover capacity commercially, back up the supply chain, and we'll make a bigger impact further up." I'd never heard of counterfeit. Like I'd never heard of drugs in the early yeah. days. Counterfeit? I mean, I bought a T-shirt, but who doesn't? So it's no, it's a big, it's a big deal. And this was say 2004. So I'd all right, I'll give it a go. The best decision I ever made was learning from a very old mentor of mine, when he came out eight years ahead of me, was that he he continued to be as a, a sole trader, and worked and worked and worked, earned good money, but didn't involve other people. Because he said that, um, it, you know, he said that building a business wasn't his thing and that it's difficult to trust others. They let you down. But the decision I made was that, that once I'd got and seen it, we had a really great success quite early on. And um, I got involved with civil, civil lawyers and 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 the, um, the freeze and seize orders that you can obtain commercially, which I'd never heard of. The power, the draconian power that, that in right circumstances those kind of things could do. And then it was um, it was going after the money of the individuals concerned. And, of course, that always excited me, going after their money. And we had a really big success quite early on. And, um, of course, it, it followed that other people saw that and, and wanted to get involved with it in terms of potential clients. So it started off as RFS Consulting, and it, it took off rapidly. Um, in the first two years, it grew ridiculous. And I incorporated Trawbis because I didn't want it to be RFS because mm. that was my initials. I wanted it to be a, a proper limited company. And Trawbis was, was was born. And um, the name took me forever to think about it. Yeah, how did you come up with the name? Yeah, uh, and, and a lot, not not so much now, but Intra is inside, Orbis is a circle. Right. I'd spent my whole life, I used to say to operational managers when we did, because I developed an operational managers course, 
um, and train lots of managers in the, in, in the region. And I always say that what we're very good at is sitting outside the ongoing conspiracy, looking in and, and either guessing or using information you've got to predict what might be going on. Yeah. Whereas with an undercover proactive investigation, you put somebody inside the circle who then gives you evidence of the ongoing conspiracy which you can rely on. So intra, inside, orbits a circle. Yep. Operating inside the circle. So that's how it came about. Um, and then two years in, um, it, it, it got out of control. And um, we then had our first team member who was, who was um, an individual who'd worked with in, in the police and she still works for us as an office manager. Um, I said to Pauline, we're struggling. You know, I'm, I'm, the invoicing's falling behind, you know, a few quid out of pocket. Um, would you want to come out two years early? And she, she took a while to think about it because it was two years' commutation. Yeah, quite yeah, a big yeah. chunk of money. Yep. And Paulie, my wife, then came out two years early, took over the back office, and we became joint um, shareholders and um, moved the business on. And, of course, going back to the theme in my career, I'm always looking to move forward, always challenging the status quo. And the same in business. I'd always, you know, they, the, the business mantra is you find great technicians who then have got skills, but they don't want to work for a boss. I vowed I'd never have a master servant relationship again. Not that I found it difficult, but I did actually, because I was troublesome at times. Um, and I, you know, in fairness, going back, I had the right of audience at times into uh, um, the command of Essex Police, well beyond my rank. And that's because I had people that believed in me or believed in us and believed in what we're doing. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I kind of had an inflated view of where I could or couldn't be for sure. My arrogance was off the scale at times, looking back. But what it did do in the business was you know, nothing was impossible. Everything was possible. And so we, I wanted to build a business. The decision I made was I want to build a small business that didn't just rely on Bob Scott because you become a technician, you sell your skills, yeah. you get paid for them and you look for another job. But of course, you're going to do so many jobs in a day. So then you become a manager and technician. So you manage yourself and others. And then you become an entrepreneur and a manager and others deliver the technicians. So I've gone through that process of being a technician, manager, manager, technician, entrepreneur of the small leagues. I still don't think I'm all that much of an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm still learning. And then I have managers, which we employ. We've got two managers. And obviously, we've got um, a team of 10 overall in, in, in our business now. And 26 partners worldwide. Um, last financial year, we did 572 investigations in 58 countries. Really? And it's grown and grown and grown. Of course, the challenge is, is you can't stand still. You know, you need to morph, you need to refigure. And, it, and it's been a fantastic, you know, I had 20, 30 years in the police, which I didn't think I'd equal. I've had 20 years, which I've enjoyed more than the 30 years. It's been an unbelievable experience. But do you think, I mean, I, the way I see business is that we're, we're risk managers. I'm not a risk taker, not in, the, not in the grand scheme of things. I don't want to walk into a bank and borrow a load of money to, to progress. I want to progress um, organically, if that makes sense. But you understand what risk is. So when it comes to running a business, it's no different to being in the police service. It's just a different type of risk. Yeah, you might, you might see that because obviously you were a manager. I wasn't. I was, you know, I was a DC all my life and... Um, I took the exam once, and me and my closest pal took it at the same time. I failed by a mark. He passed and became, you know, an SIO and, and, and chief superintendent and then gone on into politics, and I love him to the bone. Yeah. Um, and that we took different routes, and we're still, you know, good pals now. But um, 
So I had to learn that thing about, I, and I was never coin operator. The police, I, you know, money didn't. I wasn't. I didn't care about being paid. Obviously, I got paid. The reality was, I had no idea how valuable the pension was till I come out. No, I didn't care. I just wanted to do the job every day and, and, and had great days. But when I came into business and started employing people, then I had to understand the value of a pound note. Of course, I'm calling it a pound note. Probably people who want to listen to this have never seen a pound note. But um, I've still got one. Huh? Yeah. It, it, it becomes a whole different mindset. You know, we now as a business have to turn over quite a lot of money to break even each month. Yep. Uh, and it's been a success story. And I'm very proud of the team and the business because it's not been about me. It's been about a team. It still is. We have got an absolutely brilliant team now. You know, we manage a huge amount of data. Now, you know, operating as a commercial investigator in a commercial space, it's completely different to the police. Oh, yeah. Now you've got you've got no you've got no uh, legislation governing you certainly not in the UK. Um, you have to rely on on the skills you know to have your transparency justification proportionality. You have to have clients understand that when at a time in the commercial space, that's not a requirement. And there are lots of people who don't don't use it as a requirement. Um, so it's it's a bit like the Wild West in, in the commercial space in yeah. the UK certainly because it's not it's not legislated for. But it, it is a very, very active and busy space, certainly around brand protection, which is where we've specialised. And it would come as no surprise to you that in the early days now, I brought my undercover skills. And I travelled the world involving myself in commercial criminals. They're not, they're not criminals as we know in the police, but some of them are. Um, and learning the, bar- the, 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 the where the line is between what's a police matter and what's a commercial matter is a challenge. And, and as you would expect, I hit that line and... and you know, came in a slight conflict with with the police and the organisation because because I'd pushed up against that line. Yeah. And I learned a very valuable lesson there. Um, but you know, I've travelled, I've, I've I've met um, uh, counterfeiters, manufacturers of counterfeit and distributors in China, in Hong Kong, in the Middle East, and we've had some amazing successes, big jobs. You know, we seized over five and a half tons of counterfeit foodstuffs in in Latvia, and operating in, in around Riga. That's, that's amazing. And um, our small team have taken out internationally involved uh, counterfeits, and we still do. And I, I find that so Fantastic. rewarding. Where where we've got none of the um, no no PNC no no no, no, no intelligence. We've built we've built our own intelligence um, process, which is akin. You know, again, one of the things that Ripper and Human Rights and Pace taught me is or, uh, more so in the commercial space in my view, particularly in the UK where there's no no written constitution for commercial investigators. And as we know, PIs are under investigation too for lots of things that went on before which were wrong and yeah. shouldn't have happened but have. To show that the, the you know, a, a legal approval process, a thought process behind why you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, and it cost it out, and then go and deliver on that written investigation plan is essential to good governance in the commercial space. Now, not everybody does that because actually it rarely gets called into question. But for us, one of the things I did early doors was I met a very senior lawyer in a law firm in London who I regard as a friend now, who was my mentor on the commercial side of civil litigation. And uh, they have to have, they have to be sure that what you've done has been done in the right way. And, and that was fine because that's how we operate. Um, and so we've had some big successes through the commercial litigation as well. 
it's been an amazing ride. You know, it was 50, you know, I look around now, I'm, I'm 70 in December. I'm as, I'm as enthusiastic and um, thrilled with what I do and what uh, we as a team do um, as I've ever been. And, um, you know, Pauline, my wife, wants me to stop. You know, you must want to retire now, approaching 70. And, you know, I can't, I can't even begin to see what that looks like and feels like. But you've got to have you've got a purpose, and you're you're obviously driven from the age of fifteen when you you know applied to become a cadet to this point. That that drive is is a constant thread. Yeah. So, but if you ever if you packed up, how would you fill that void? And I, you know, Bob Scott, I'm not sure you'd be able to do that. Even no. with Pauline saying, you know, you've got to hang up your gloves. You've got to have purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, you come here today at a time where, in my life where I am questioning all those things because I've I've always questioned myself. I've always been introspective. Oh, what have I done? Have I done? Have I done good? Have I done bad? And if I've not done good, I've been prepared to throw my hands up. Um, but I really, at a time in my career where I can't see a pathway beyond just doing what I'm doing, there must be one. I'm, I mean, I'm a portrait artist from my sins. I'm an amateur portrait artist from my sins. I, I went, when I had that, when I left in January 2003 into, into 2004, I went back to school to, to, to go back to hone my well, skills in, in, in um, pastel pencils. Yeah, I, I did pets and people. Um, I've got great artists way back in my family. It's in my DNA somewhere. I'm not a great artist. I could be better. I'm a reasonable artist. Um, and I enjoyed it. But of course, the the drive and that individual that you know that I am wasn't content with sitting down. I mean, I've met some fabulous people, um, very much older than I, but I got, I got bored very quickly and I, I, needed, I needed another purpose, which Introbus became. And I'm not ready to go back to drawing and painting yet, but that's one thing. But no, I, I think that whatever happens, um, I'll be doing something probably to... Pretty much the day I pop my clogs, mm. which you know. But if you've got a good team that are, that's running the business and doing that side, and you can have that interaction, then long may it continue. Yeah, I think the challenge for me is that somebody has to drive any business. Yeah. Complacency, you know, is, is the killer. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, in a business, you either go backwards or you go forwards. You can't stand still. No. So therefore, you need somebody to be the innovator, the creator, the driving force. And, and you know, Pauline is 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 as much as, uh, responsible as I am because one, she allows me the bandwidth to do that. You know, my life is settled. We have a great life. You know, we've got a great home. So you know, that side of it, you know, uh, luckily I haven't got a, I haven't got to um, spend a lot of time worrying about. It. Not that I ever would. You know, she allows me the freedom to, to to be that entrepreneur that I want to be. I'm not there yet. You know, I'd like to be a much better entrepreneur than I am. Whether I'll ever get there, I don't know. But um, what I do know is that the space that I'm in, the commercial space I'm in, is huge. There's bags of opportunity. Um, there's a lot of us out there, mm. you know, ex-customs, ex-spies, ex-military, ex-police. We're all out there offering our solutions in the brand protection space. You know, Obviously, the cyber bit is, is, is big. The online bit is big. But I'm a people person, so... I focus on how we can identify people yeah. at it and providing the evidence to somebody to do something about it. Interesting enough, the one thing I've done very little with is 
referrals to the police. We got involved in a few cases with, with, with the um, PIPQ, um, with trading standards and with customs. Invariably, they turned out not to be great experiences. And brands who are, pro who are progressive um, use, use those the authorities quite sparingly because they're, they're, you know, it, it is a very difficult environment to operate in. But do you think there's a lack of understanding from the authorities or a lack of commitment? Because from, from look, I've got a jaded police view around all this, but if you go back historically, when um, certain sections of the community were selling counterfeit DVDs, historically that money was going back into terrorism. Organised crime groups have got well and truly entrenched in the counterfeit supply. And... Actually, if the police were more cooperative and worked closer with brand protectors, then actually they could take out a lot more classy criminals. Well, first of all, you're right. Organised crime have, have, have got... I've always had their feet in here. Yeah. Because I remember back in the 90s uh, buying a big parcel of... I'm talking about millions of pounds of funny money uh, or counterfeit um, of documents, um, particularly passports. And they'd have a big parcel of counterfeit clobber and in those days nobody was interested in it no uh, and because the priority was obviously the funny money and the um, the passports but they routinely were there um, but no certainly over the last 20 years the marketplace has changed the counterfeit marketplace has changed um, where counterfeit is in China and Southeast Asia because it's not only China were manufacturing counterfeits and advertising now they're, 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 they've got wiser and more careful about it. Pharmaceuticals and tobacco have always been very attractive to organised crime because there was no risk. Is there a risk now? I'm sure there must be, but I'm sure, you know, I trust in the establishment. I'm sure, you know, maybe I'm being naive, that at, at the right levels, these things are still pretty much on the table. I think, you know, people associate counterfeits with um, Spanish holidays, marketplaces, um, and online cheap deals. Now, where we've operated at is corrupt business people moving container fulls of counterfeit yeah. of all descriptions. Certainly in recent years, you know, it used to be lifestyle drugs. You know, I've, I've, I've travelled on the train with thousands of blisters of Viagra, scared they're going to fall out on the, off the rail into the floor. <laughs> you know, we, I've bought thousands and thousands and thousands of Viagra. Um, as part of an investigation and that evidence then used uh, commercially um, in, in a civil litigation. But now it's life-saving drugs that are being counterfeited, cancer drugs, Alzheimer's drugs. and Disgusting. Absolutely, and it, and it is a massive problem. Foodstuffs, you know, um, you know we've, we've been involved in, in, in the IT sector. You know, nobody ever died by buying a, a counterfeit. T-shirt or a piece of IT, but actually the IT gets into banks, hospitals. Now there are many, many things now. That, well, there's nothing that isn't counterfeit that's got a, a, a global demand. Well, you look at <coughs> the, the, the counterfeit demand in um, wine, for instance. That's like a billion-dollar yeah. industry yeah. for Adam. Counterfeit fireworks. Yeah. The health and safety element of all of this. You don't have to look at the issues when they had the wine, where they put antifreeze in it. If it, it's the it's the health scares and it's the risks that are placed around it. Well, yeah, I mean, I could again. I you know I, I've kind of brushed over thirty years, and I now just brushed over. And some people might think we haven't brushed over it, but we have. And I've brushed over twenty years. The counterfeit market, the the um, 
the whole commercial crime piece is huge. Mm. Um, and there are lots of good people doing lots of good things. You know, there are lots of good people, lots of good companies doing stuff online because clearly online is where this stuff is used to just be sold openly. It's not so open now. But the online market space is, is very vibrant. The offline market space is as busy as ever been. Um, but, but where it's now become um, selective brands, it's, it's, it's a lot more products that are being counterfeit. Social media sites are being used more. There are a lot more closed groups. You know, it goes back, what it reminds me of is the days of, of the heroin dealers. You used to go, you can't get into heroin dealer because it's a closed community. Well, at the time we got into it, it became a little more open. Mm. But it was only open onto estates. And we got our, our boys and girls into the estates and buying from act, you know, purporting to be heroin users. And they were absolutely unbelievable at doing it. Same now of, of counterfeit. Because it's being squeezed, it's finding new ways to be more, to be a safer place to trade in. But in the end, um, there's a massive consumer demand. And like drugs and narcotics, illicit drugs, where there's a consumer demand, there's a huge consumer demand. So there's clearly you know, academics, people much cleverer than I, looking at, well, you know, you're never going to solve it. And of course you're not. And of course, all you ever do is, I, I, I kind of liken it to you know, that break in nature. All you can do is slow it down or interfere with it. And I think they, the words that, that cropped up in the late 1990s, 2000s was, was disrupt and cause disruption. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, detect and disrupt, detect, dismantle. I think they were a couple yeah. of the phrases that came up. And the same now applies there. And of course, brands have a different view of what success looks like. Yeah, because they're willing to take a percentage of, of loss, aren't they? So they, you know, everyone's got a, a threshold of what they consider to be reasonable, where it impacts. I mean, some companies will go after people that make decals of motorcycle brands. You know, they'll they'll do a cease and desist, but other companies will let them carry on manufacturing because they see it as a good way of promoting their actual brand. So yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I think that um, for me. Global brands are all on a journey. And I hate this phrase, but it's true. And it's cyclical. And you start off with not realising you've got a problem, maybe suspecting you have, and absorbing it into your margins. And then that problem becomes a bigger margin and then it starts to affect your bottom line and then you've got your shell to think of. And and they then decide to put something in place. And, and lots of people put the bare minimum in place because they don't want to spend any more money than they think they have to. And then you've got other companies that have gone through a much tougher journey and have got much more mature programs and deal with it differently. But what happens is, is then as they, as they move through to be a component part of the brand, then uh, they've seen others that ebb away and that, that people change and they go, they reduce down their, their uh, program. And then you've got others that are coming up. So always there's a cyclical thing about brand protection solutions because in the end, a widget maker makes and sells a widget for a profit. They don't make a widget to protect the brand of it. No. Now, you're all, you know, notwithstanding that everybody now, almost everybody's put in place, you know, trademark and all, yeah. all those sides of it. I'm talking about now where you've got a proactive attack on your brand by copying everything, whether it's technical or physical. Yeah. And in some cases, other brands go, that's the risk. That's the risk of doing business. We accept the risk, 
because because um, the numbers are are relatively small. Now, where we've seen that happen is actually it can at times overwhelm a business counterfeit, and then they try to do something about it. And we had we had one a few years ago where it almost overwhelmed it, and we infiltrated the the supply chain and the manufacturers, and we did a joint operation with investigators in China. And they took out the whole nine yards in China wow. based on what we provided out of China back into China. Um, and, now, and, and as I said before, we've got 26 partners. We've done some great work in um, Indonesia and the Philippines around counterfeit um, seeds, corn seeds. Now, can you believe that you know, something like corn seeds are counterfeit? They are. And of course, where they affect it is you've got countries that, that rely on their farmers. The farmers are the pillars of their communities and they provide the food for their, for their communities. If those seeds don't bring the yield and they work, they can work out the yield, they can't feed their citizens. So it's a massive problem. Yeah. And of course, you know, um, it, this problem has been going on for years and we can, through a great partner we've got down in Southeast Asia, they infiltrated the, the gang and we took out um, five and a half tonnes of counterfeit seeds on a red action following surveillance observations over a period of time. And what I couldn't get over was the sophistication of the count surveillance manoeuvres and the tactics of the counterfeits they put in place to frustrate the authorities. Then you had a problem of getting the police involved, but the guys down there did it. Um, but for me, solving them puzzles is as exciting whether it's one thing or a thousand things. Solving the puzzles is the thing. And the buzz is seeing our team at Interorbis manage that, deal with the data, provide the, the evidence, and then provide the client with the chance of, of, of either um, police action or, or civil restitution. And that never diminishes that, that thrill, whatever it is, it never diminishes. Do you get involved in private prosecutions? We haven't done, because I know there are some that do. Um, no, um, some of my competitors do. Uh, um, but where I, where I see that is that if you look at the counterfeit marketplace, it's a pyramid, it's an inverted pyramid. You've got the manufacturer at the top of the point, and as you come down along the bottom of the pyramid, and I don't mean the bottom as in any less, less important, but across the bottom of the pyramid, there are many more obvious manifestations of counterfeit marketplaces, your beaches on holiday, yeah. your online space where you can buy it. Um, in my experience, a lot of those private prosecutions in the UK are identifying people who are active along the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. Which is fine, um, you know, and, and deep respect for them doing that. But where we've tend to operate is beyond that. Yeah. So where you where you where we've got involved as a company is either they take it out at source or at distribution level somewhere from the source country. As you'll know, you know the Middle East is a is a hub. Certain Dubai is a hub. Mm. Uh, take it out there, or take it out um, at the source country. But once it gets here and starts to be distributed, it's it's more difficult to do something about it um, unless you get those who bring it in. Well, absolutely, because what you're doing is it's like whack a mole, isn't it? You're you're taking the one out here, but they'll say there's one in in London, but there'll be another two in. In Birmingham, and it's it's actually infiltrating. You need to go that one step beyond. Yeah, well, need is an interesting word. I think there are some, you, know, you don't need to, but you can do. I think that the guys that do that work, work incredibly hard and yeah. are very successful at it. And I take my hat off to, you, to them to do it. Um, it's just, I think really what it 
comes down to, again, a bit of my old arrogance. And that is I wanted to do what I liked doing. And I loved the challenge of going for the supply chain. Yeah. You know, in the, in the, in the police, it was a, the drug supply chain or the stolen goods supply chain, whatever it was. I wasn't satisfied with nicking Ari and Billy, the, the handlers or the thieves. I want, or not the thieves, the handlers and the distributors. I want the thieves and the major players. Yeah. And I took that same ethos into the business. Because what I learned was, it was all very well satisfying my ego to take out bigger parcels. But as a business model, it wasn't sustainable because brands didn't have the budget or the will to continue taking out big parcels all the time. They needed to take out, um, make smaller gains elsewhere. Yeah. So now as a business, you know, we do hundreds of test purchases a year, online or in person. The number of managed um, undercover investigations, undercover investigations are probably a handful now and they ebb and flow. Um, but we still have them. And our clients' appetite for doing them ebbs and flows. Because in the end, it's the business imperative that matters. And that is they make widgets to make a profit, yeah. whatever their widget might be. And so that's their focus, not, not investigating. No, of course. They, 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 they buy into it when they have to, and I get that. And they use it when they have to. Um, you know, some clients have had great successes and then have put it to bed for a while because, because they want to focus more on other things, making money, making widgets. Are, you, are your parents still around? No, my, my, my mum died at 63 of breast cancer, which was a shocking day. Yeah. Um, and my dad uh, died in his early 70s. But I had a challenging relationship with my father, so we were never close. What do you think you'd say now, Bob? My dad? Yeah. I'm not sure what he'd say. Uh, it was a very fractured relationship. So I'm sure he would be proud, mm. but he would never say so. Um, and um, he wrote a book, my dad. Did he really? Yeah, he because he, he did some very, very interesting investigations worldwide as a as an investigator well before, um, uh, you know, he used to take his own fingerprints and uh, do his own scientific stuff and he'd do it in Borneo. Wow. He'd send his fingerprint off to Australia. And he wrote a book called, um, talking about Jack Scotland, um, was his pseudonym and it it, it it was actually it was for me it wasn't a great book to read because it was a series of 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 ex-cop reporting you know it, yeah yeah it didn't it didn't draw you in but um yeah he wrote a book and published it privately i don't know how many copies he sold i've got a copy somewhere but um yeah i, I don't know is the truth answer um, i think you'd be proud mate you'd, I, I, yeah. I look at you know i've known you as a say for an awful long time and you've you've done really really well what next for intra-orbit, say? Um, good question. I think that um, I've still got ambitions to grow. Um, I used to have huge ambitions to be you know, really big, but you learn to temper those ambitions with reality. Um, if I haven't got an ambition to grow, then you stand still or go, and you end up going backwards. So we're still looking to grow. We've just increased our team, another full-time member of the team. Um, we're still increasing our partnership approach. Because what's happened in the pandemic... One, we lost a huge chunk of revenue because the brands shut down. Yeah. So they weren't investigating. They were more worried about their manufacturing distribution, quite rightly. And we had a bit of an epiphany over the pandemic. And we've been through a recession, a pandemic, now a second recession. We're still here. Um, so our job then was to, can we survive? And we survived the pandemic. Um, we lost something over 40% of our revenues. But in, as in 2019 was our best year. 
2020-21 was our worst years. Right. 2022 was just short of our best year in 2019. So we've gone back up. Um, so um, the, the, the ambition now is to, to grow beyond 2019's level and continue to grow organically. Because amongst all this, we've never borrowed any money. We've self-financed the business. Yeah. Um, and uh, it has been organic growth. Uh, where we're at now in our life cycle is that organic growth is okay, but it's slow. Yes, it is. And, you know, uh, from, from a personal point of view, it's never been about the money, um, although obviously, you know, we've done okay out of it. It's about being that entrepreneur. Now. Yeah. What can, I, what can I create beyond what I've already created? Yeah. What can, and I say I, I mean, again, I've used the word I, but it's a team effort. Without having a great team who, who buy into what we're trying to achieve, and they do massively. Yeah. They do. I mean, I go in the office um, only a few days a week now. Um, and when I sit in, in my office and listen to the team problem solve for themselves, each of those individuals are always looking to make, it, make a better contribution. Yeah. Which is amazing because I come from an organization like you where not everyone, but a large part of what they did then. It's a job. They did the job. Went home, and that's what an employee does. So it's not a criticism; it's an observation. Yeah. And um, there were there were less people who are driving, you know, creating new opportunities, pushing the boundaries. Now, in in our in our small business, each individual buys into what we're trying to achieve and wants to make it better. And um, it's amazing. I absolutely am in awe of of, of all each and every one of them. Nice. And you're quite right. If we all if we all had that same drive, then the marketplace would be absolutely stuffed. We, you know, you you wouldn't have be able to have a good team because everybody would want to be an entrepreneur. So you've got to have. Yeah, that. I think the reality is that there are people who want to be employed and those who, who want to be entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, and that's where you know, like a football team, you can't have all strikers. You need a blend. And I think that in our small business, we've got a great blend, and, and our partners too. You know, I had, a, I had a bit of a family tragedy over the weekend. Um, um, my cousin, one of my cousins phoned me from Singapore and his wife died. Oh, sorry. Died. And he was all alone. So I said, wait a minute, I'll ring up um, my partner in Singapore. And I rang uh, him, who instantly picked up the phone and rang my cousin oh. to, to, to provide him whatever support he could. Yeah. To me, and that's just the beauty of going to be part of a I big agree. team. Oh, and that, that, you know, that to me, that meant more what he did for me in Singapore than anything else. Yeah. And he's, he's, he and his team have provided a fantastic success for us. Um, and, and, of course, going back to the pandemic, our model, business model changed to being, you know, an overseer of investigations worldwide rather than a deliverer of investigations in UK and Europe. So we do, you know, so in 58 countries, probably, you know, 60% of what, 60% of what we do, maybe more, is outside of the UK and Europe. Um, it's it's all over the world. South America has some great successes there. China, we work quite closely on occasion. Middle East, we've got a great partner in the Middle East, an unbelievable uh, team there. Um, and and elsewhere in Africa and elsewhere. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that a, an ex-military council house kid with little ambition, certainly very little in a way of uh, qualifications because I think I was probably, I probably still am slightly dyslexic and failed my exams, although I worked hard. So with that, no, with no very little um, qualification to be on me, 
but with a lot of self-belief and determination and drive, here we sit on the cusp of my 70th birthday. And I can look back and say, I, I can hardly remember a bad day in all, I must have had, I mean, you know, certainly professionally anyway, uh, bad days that I've had and there have been very few and I've enjoyed every second and, and genuinely this last 20 years has been the most fulfilling professionally I've had. So I guess anybody that might be listening to this that's coming to the end of their 30 years, what to do. People say you've got great skills you have, but you need to know what their value is, true value in the marketplace. Mm. You need to have a vision and a desire, but determination and hard work are still the cornerstones to achieving anything. Whether, and, and, and the commitment, because you will have good days and bad days. And um, again, thankfully, the 20 days, 20 years in business, as it will be, uh, 20 years for me, but 19 years for the business this July, this June, I really haven't had that many bad days. Challenges, yes. Failures, yeah, certainly. But I've never been afraid of failing. And now Richard Branson was a great role model for me. And he said many years ago, I've had more failures than success, but I don't dwell on the failures. I just move on to the next success. Mm. Uh, and that's very true. You know, you, 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 uh, you, have, to, you have to be there. Uh, uh, you have to fail to be able to succeed. Because yeah, if, do, if you do nothing, then you won't succeed. So, no. I, mean, I, I am aware that I've talked a lot and I could probably go on for a lot longer, but... I've, I've really enjoyed it, Bob. And, you know, before I go any further, I'll give you the old adage, is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in relation <laughs> to the stories that we've just gone through? I'm signing no statement, mate. Bob, I wish you every success for the rest of the year and beyond uh, and a happy 70th birthday later on. And thank, thank you. you so much for your time No, no, today. it's a pleasure. I hope, I hope actually, um, the listener... Finds it interesting and not boring and switches stuff halfway through. They will love it, mate. Thank you very much. Cheers, Paul. Cheers. Thanks, mate.